For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. Yeah, so we started last week in uh, chapter 10, and we started really just in verses 1 through 5, talking about this idea of spiritual warfare, spiritual battle. How does it work? What is it? You know, it, it sounds like it's, it's some kind of crazy thing, but we spent really most of our time in verses 3 through 5 last week, and we're going to be right there again because these verses are so packed with such a great explanation that is found throughout the Bible of the importance of truth, the importance of ideas. The verse we've been studying here is 2 Cor 10, 3 through 5, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And so we spent our entire time just sort of unpacking that, but we have to stretch it out into this week because there's so much there. Just to give you a reminder, or if you weren't here, what we talked about is spiritual warfare, as it's being described here, is a war of ideas to, to struggle and to discover the truth. That what he's saying is weapons of physical war, yes, those can end your life, and, and that's a big deal, and we all are aware of, of the tragedy and the loss and the pain and the horror of war. But there, there are worse things from a spiritual perspective than dying. If you believe that you have a soul, something about yourself that continues on past your mortal body, then things that could affect your soul, your spirit, who you are at the core of your being, your eternal self, then an idea can be even more powerful than the greatest of physical weapons. And the battle that's fought when we talk about spiritual warfare is an even more important battle than a physical battle because the stakes are, in fact, higher. We talked about it's clear from Scripture that there are no people who are your enemy in this war. That this is not a war where we look at people who are different or who have different ideas than us and we see them as the enemy. No, this is a spiritual battle against the enemies of God who are directly trying to distort the truth of God to get us to choose sides. Do we want to be on the side that says there is a God, that He has spoken, that He is good and merciful and loving and just, and He has a will and He desires us to follow Him? Or do we want to be on the side that says you are your own God? You decide what's right and wrong for yourself, and you be God for yourself, and you don't need Him. No matter where you fall on that spectrum, God loves you. And as the followers of Jesus Christ, it is our job to get out into the world and to demonstrate the love of God to those who don't know Him. Those who are apart from God at the very worst are deceived and are the victims of God's enemies, not ours. We did a case study of spiritual warfare where we went all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, verses 4-5, through 5, and we looked at Adam and Eve in the garden. And how God had said, do not eat from this tree. He had given them a choice. The tree represented that choice. 
And the enemy of God was there to try to persuade them to eat from the tree. And he did it in a very methodical way. We also saw the impact that spiritual war can have. When you lose a spiritual war and you choose a lie, that particular lie brought all injustice, all selfishness, all cruelty, all evil was brought into the world because Adam and Eve chose to rebel against God and believe a lie. Everything that we look out into the world, all of man's inhumanity to man is not a result of the way that God created us. It's a result of our rebellion against the goodness of God. And so the enemy came in and first he distorted what God said. Remember, this is a battle of ideas. God said, don't eat from this tree or you will surely die. And the first thing the enemy said was, did God really say that? Are you sure that what he meant was don't eat from that tree? Because I'm telling you, if you eat from that tree, if you eat from that fruit, you will not die. He contradicted the word of God. He questioned it. He contradicted it. And then he accused God. He said, what's really going on here, guys, is God knows that if you do eat from this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you'll be like him. And he wants to keep you under his thumb. He wants you simple so he can control you. And God is not actually good. He has his own selfish motives for keeping you from that tree. And so he painted the character of God in a terrible way, and he persuaded Adam and Eve. He didn't force them. He made an argument that they chose to believe and put into action, and they rebelled against their creator. And so we ended that time sort of with this next question of, okay, so that's the example of how not to do spiritual warfare, to believe the lies of the enemy and put them into action. So how do we get into the fight, you know? If we're all here, we're not neutral in this war. No matter what your background is, no matter what you believe, you're on a battlefield. We are born onto a spiritual battlefield of ideas. And we're bombarded all the time with different ideas about what truth is. So what is the Bible sense? What is God's sense of how to get engaged with this war? How do we arm ourselves for this fight? And how do we, how do we engage in the fight? And really what we're going to do is we're going to focus on this last verse of that same section because he tells us what we need to know right here. He says, we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. The way that we get engaged in this war, the way that we get in the fight is by being discriminating about the ideas that you let roll around in your head that you think about what you're accepting is true. And one of the great problems that we have is not understanding the, the importance and the meaning and the power of ideas and words. We allow ourselves to be bombarded all the time by counterfeit truths, and we just lap them up and accept them as true. The advertising industry depends on this, right? I love playing a game with my kids, especially when they were little. We'd be watching TV and an ad would come on, you know, and there'd be some, you know, crazy dinosaur fruit cereal, something like that. And, you know, they would watch it and they would be like, Dad, can we get that? And I would be like, they got you. They got you. And they'd be like, what? I'd be like, they made you think that if you don't have that cereal, you just can't be happy. You know, who's ever gone to the grocery store with a little kid? right? It's like a nightmare, you know? It's like you go down the, the aisle, and it's like, I want this, and I want this, ah! 
you know, we're constantly bombarded with ideas of what we need. And we say, well, yeah, that's little kids. Watch the retirement commercials, right? What do they say? It's not sugar cereal. It's the freedom that you have earned to have the kind of life that you deserve, right? That's a powerful idea. And what is it appealing to? It's appealing to security. It's appealing to pride. It's appealing to what you deserve. It's not asking the question of, what does it look like to live a great life of retirement? It's saying that a great life of retirement is to do and have the freedom to do whatever you want to do. It doesn't ask the question of what's right or what's wrong or what's good. It just plays on your desire to be in control. You see, it's not just there. I mean, it's everywhere. That there are ideas coming at us all the time. And what he's saying is, is when these ideas come, we need to develop critical faculties to examine them. Are they true? Do they matter? And how will they impact my life? And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ and a follower of the teachings of the Bible, then you have to say, how does this fit in with the biblical worldview that I think is true? We have to know what, God claims, what God's claims are, right? If you don't know what God says is right and wrong, how do you scrutinize all these ideas and try to discern, figure out where they're coming from? you got to spend some time getting into and learning who God is and what He has said so that you can stand against the false accusations of the enemy. If you don't know anything about the Word of God, you're on a battlefield and there's bullets whizzing by you and you don't have any armor. You don't have any context, any way of of knowing which way the enemy is and, and which way is home. And so... The mind of God, the truth of God and the Word inform us and enable us to begin that process of what Paul called taking our thoughts captive. So what I thought would be useful is we gave a negative example of a failure where where the good guys lost the spiritual battle in Adam and Eve. Let's look at another example where battle is done with the enemy of God and victory is the result. We turn to Luke chapter 4 and look at verses 1 through 4, and we find Jesus very early in his ministry. And it says, full of the Holy Spirit, he returned from the Jordan and was led around, this is right after his baptism, was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they had ended, he became hungry. And the devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, Tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, man shall not live on bread alone. Now notice the similarities here. We have Jesus, who is a sinless man, who's God come to earth, but he has the frailties of a human body, just like Adam and Eve did. And he is being confronted with the enemy of God who very much is trying to do exactly the same thing that happened in the garden. He's trying to play Jesus' human frailties against him so that he can get him to rebel against the Word of God. And the picture here is clear. He's led into the desert by the Holy Spirit. God wants him 
to be in this situation. He wants him to be tested, right? He has an urgent and legitimate need. He would be just as hungry here as you and I would be if after 40 days of not eating, right? Human body can go actually a long time without eating. He would need water, but you can go a long time without food, but he would be weak, probably not thinking super clearly, and ready to just eat anything and everything that he could find. And what the enemy does is a lot more brilliant than it seems on the surface. This is, a, this is a, a shrewd tactician, right? Because what he says is, why don't you meet that physical need, that legitimate physical need for food that you have by pro- and also prove that you're the Son of God. Show me your power, Jesus, Why don't you just prove who you are? You say you're the Son of God. You say you're the Messiah, the fulfillment of of the Old Testament passages. Show me right here and right now. I want to see what I'm dealing with. You're hungry? You can make these rocks into food if you want. Let's see it. I don't even think you're real. I don't think you are who you say you are. And I won't believe it, and I won't treat you with respect unless you show me your power. Now there's an interesting thing here that we have to take aside as we think about this picture. What is temptation, right? It says that Jesus is being tempted. And one of the things that helps in this spiritual battle as we scrutinize these ideas, we have to understand that being tempted is not the same as doing evil. Do we know that? Do we believe that? Because what often happens with us is when we experience temptation, we're like, well, it's too late now. This temptation's not gonna go away until I, until I, I do it. So, you know, the key here is, is to not be tempted. And because I'm already tempted and I'm already in sin, I might as well go all the way and just finish this out. I've already failed. But that's, a great example of the way that the enemy works. Temptation is not a sin. And you might say, well, Jesus said that the heart matters, right? And if you hate your brother, that's the same as murdering him in your heart. And so that's a sin. And that is true. Hate and your inner motivations do count in terms of how we follow God or don't follow God. But let's say you were tempted to hate somebody. You had a moment of choice. What is temptation, really? It's a moment of choice. This person has made me angry, and I could choose to let that go, or I can choose to let that smolder and burn within me. I could choose to forgive them, or I can choose to hold it against them. That's the moment of temptation. That is not sin. It's when you choose to hold on to hate it becomes sin. It's the same with every sin you could think of. Lust, right? You're walking down the street. You notice someone of the opposite sex. They're attractive. You have a moment of pause. Should I gaze longer and, and think about this person in a sexual way? Or should I pray and turn to God and say, help me in my weakness? You haven't sinned at that point. You've been tempted. But what you do with that choice is what matters. Temptation is the moment of choice. It is not a sin. So don't buy into the lie that when you feel tempted, 
it's too late and you might as well give in. Because that is just giving all the power to the enemy. Look at 1 Corinthians 10, 13. It says, no temptation has overtaken you, but such is common to man. There's a powerful truth to fight that idea right there. How many times have you been tempted and you're like, nobody has ever been tempted like I'm being tempted right now. God will surely understand if I, if I sin because this temptation is so powerful, it's probably the greatest temptation that anyone has ever experienced. And God's like, nope, that's the same temptation that everyone gets. It's common to all people. The temptation that you feel is the same temptation that everyone feels, including Jesus Christ. And God, he says, is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. You see how he's knocking down the lies? Lies that you and I, I know, are very familiar with. We're being tempted. We think no one could ever be tempted this much. God says, actually, it's common, right? And then we say, what? We say, well, there's just no way out. I just have to sin. There's just no way for me not to sin. There's no way. And God says, I promise you I will always provide a way out. I will not allow, in my sovereignty, I will not allow you to be tempted in a way where there's no way out. In a way where your free will is overridden. You will always have a choice. He just knocks down. It's, God is so familiar with the way that his enemy works with temptation. Jesus here in the desert, is clearly tempted to meet his own needs and prove his power. He's hungry. He is who he says that he is. He could easily prove it, put the enemy in his place. And we also read in Hebrews 4, 15 and 16, talking about Jesus as our high priest. It says, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. So clearly, temptation is not a sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. This process that we're talking about here, the way that we go through it is, you feel that temptation and you go through those litany of lies. I've, tempted, I've been tempted, so I might as well go through with it. I'm, but the temptation is so powerful, I can't possibly resist it. No one has ever been tempted like I am. And God says, no, 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 and I've been there, and I understand, and I am there for you right now. You do have a choice. And that's where that spiritual battle really lies, isn't it? We want to believe that the choice has been taken away from us, and it's not our fault. We can just proceed on into clear rebellion against God and God comes in and says you always have a choice you always have an out and I understand how hard it is I have been there in the same way that you are and if you will let me I will be there for you in this as well so rather than doing as Adam and Eve did Jesus decides to reject Satan's challenge. And he does it with Scripture. 
He does it with the Word of God. What does He say? And it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. Why does He say that? Well, for one thing, He's quoting Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. Deuteronomy 8, verse 3, in its context, they've been wandering around the desert not for 40 days, but for 40 years. And God himself has been providing for the entire people of Israel food that they need to sustain themselves. They wake up in the morning and there's this stuff on the ground called manna. Because there are all these many, many thousands of people, close to a million people, wandering around the desert with no food source. God provides for their needs in a marvelous way. And he says, he humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna which, did, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. And so do you see Jesus' argument here? His brilliant use of Scripture. Satan says, show me you're the Son of God. Demonstrate your power. You're hungry. Turn this stone into bread and I'll believe you. And Jesus says there are more important things than physical hunger. There's dependence on God. And rather than do this thing that I could easily do, I will wait and I know that God will provide for me. It's a battle, right? It's a battle. This is like the first, you know, when uh, the Dread Pirate Roberts and the Spaniard come up and they're kind of like, ting, ting, you know, and they're like, they're, they're sizing each other up. This is what boxers do. They want you to throw a couple punches, right? So they can look. They can look at you and they can say, okay, where have you studied? What's your methodology? Where are you coming from here? And it's the beginning of this fight. We have a fight scene, a spiritual battle being fought out between God come to earth and Satan, an ideological war. And they've just clashed swords for the first time. And there's more. We read on and it says in Luke 4, 6-8, through 8, and the devil said to him, I'll give you this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me and I will give it to whoever, whoever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall all be yours. And again, we might think, that's odd. Why would, you know, why would Jesus be tempted? Why would, why would this be tempting to Jesus to worship Satan. Well, for one thing, Satan is now using the truth. He is telling the truth in order to gain advantage over Jesus. He switches tactics. All of a sudden, he's like, you know what? This whole world belongs to me. And that is absolutely true. He is in temporary control of the world according to the Bible. 1 John 5, 19, we know that we are of God, but the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. When Satan convinced Adam and Eve over onto his side, he became the ruling ethos, the ruling uh, culture of the planet Earth. And what he's saying to Jesus is, is, look, I'm not sure why you're here. I'm not sure what this is all about. But if it's to win the hearts and minds of the human race, Whatever it is that you have planned, we can put all of that aside and I will give you earth. You just have to be my number two. You can control the earth, but I control you. And if you're willing to set that up, you can avoid whatever your plan is. Now for Jesus, that plan was the cross. 
He was going to go and take the wrath that we all deserve upon himself so that man could be reconciled to him. And what Satan is saying is, let's just shortcut that. I was your number two for a long time. Let's just switch roles. And you can be in charge. Just worship me. If Jesus wants to be king, all he has to do is agree that Satan is greater than he is and worship him. And if Satan gets Jesus to violate what God has said, it's the same thing. It would be Adam and Eve in the garden all over again. If Jesus sins, he can no longer be a a sacrifice. He can no longer take our place. He has to be sinless so that he can take the punishment that we deserve upon himself. If he sins, there is no forgiveness for us. The same stakes at the same level as in the garden are happening right here again, but we don't have Adam and Eve. We have Jesus Christ. So he turns again to the Word of God. Jesus answered him, Luke 4, 6-8, through 8, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. Deuteronomy 6, 13, You shall fear the Lord your God and you shall worship Him and swear by His name. Jesus is saying, what you're offering me, you do have the power to give me that. You could could give me the control of the world. But I would have to worship you, which is a violation of God's law, and that is not God's way, and I will not do it. I believe the word of God. And he quotes it. You can see Satan like, hmm, I see you've studied your Deuteronomy. And so he takes Jesus to Jerusalem and has him stand on the pinnacle of the temple, this high point. And he says to him, if you are the Son of God, if you are truly who you say you are, jump. Four. Now Satan quotes Scripture. (laughs) Awesome. Satan says, for it is written, Jesus, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands, they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus is like, I've read the Bible too, dude. Are you going to violate the word of God by not proving the word of God to be true? You say the Bible is so powerful. The word of God is so important. Why don't you, why don't you put it into action here? Isn't that what your scriptures say? Faith is belief in action. Well, if you believe the word of God, jump. And it's kind of funny. You get a real sense of how important. I mean, this is, this is a battle with high stakes. But he's quoting Scripture out of context. And of course, he's twisting it to become a temptation. Again, trying to get Jesus to prove his power. And Jesus knows his Scripture and, fortunately, practices good principles of interpretation. (laughs) And he responds, it is also written that you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. He says, if I jump from here, I will be protected. We'll see that that Scripture is true. But I don't need to jump from here to know that. 
Because I also know that what God has said is true. And among the things that God has said is don't unnecessarily try him. Don't put him to the test. And you want me to violate God's word and put him to the test. Deuteronomy 6.16. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test and you tested him as you tested him at Massa. So the breakdown here, the post-fight breakdown of what happens here. Satan uses whatever he can to tempt Jesus into going against God's word. Even God's word. Whatever it takes. But Jesus, what does he do? He analyzes everything that Satan says and compares it to what he knows is true, to what God says is true. He takes his thoughts captive and makes them obedient to God. He knows his word and he compares what's being said to what God has said and he chooses what God has said and he is not fooled. Verse 13, when the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until a more opportune time. And that's just the way that the evil one works. That's just the way the enemies of God works. You stand firm. You trust in the Lord. You trust in his word. And it resides. The temptation resides for a time. The battle is over, but the war would continue. He would try other tactics, knowing that Jesus wasn't going to fall for what worked with Adam and Eve. James 4, 7 says, Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. That, the other lie that we believe is this, is this temptation, this idea, this, this thought is just going to continue to plague me forever until I give in. And God says, no, resist and it will go away. It may come back. It may very well come back, but resist then and it will go away. And it doesn't take long. It just takes a little patience, a little dependence, a little prayer, a little faithfulness on our part to see the promises of God made true. What are the key reasons why we fail? We're far more like Adam and Eve than we are like Jesus when it comes to temptation. We think temptation is the same as sin. We talked about that. That is a big reason that is a lie and you could see why the evil one would let would want us to believe that temptation is sin because we're not in control of whether or not we are tempted you can't control that what you can do is control what you do with that temptation so he can just tempt us and have us believe that the battle's over before it's even been started we think temptation is too strong and it will never stop another lie Clearly, from Scripture, we've refuted. We don't know God's Word well enough to hold our own in a fight. That's actually a big part of the problem, usually. We get confused because we don't know. You know, Jesus is able to rattle off these verses, to think about it and come back because he spent time studying the Word of God. We have to get, we have to get steeped deeply into God's truth to be prepared for this battle. And then finally, we fail because we think we have to do this on our own. When we feel temptation, the last thing we want to do is share it with somebody else. Hey, will you pray for me? I'm feeling tempted, right? Will you help me think of some scriptures about these temptations, about these accusations that I'm thinking about? Or 
Will you turn to God and say, God, I'm feeling tempted in my heart. I know that my will is weak and I need you, Lord, to help me through this. And that's the truth. The truth is, is we have a secret weapon in this war. You and I, not that powerful as spiritual beings at this point. Yes, we're created in the image of God, but we have a limited perspective. We don't tend to see. We tend to see things in a physical sense and depend on what we can taste, touch, smell, and see far more so than the spiritual things. We don't have a clear picture of the full spiritual reality of what's really happening, and so we are easily fooled. But what God does is something incredible. He takes His Spirit and He puts it inside of us. The same God with the same power over life and death, the same power of creation, He gives us that power to fight this battle with. 1 John 4, 4, you are from God, little children, and have overcome them because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. He puts a power when you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. He puts a power within you that is far greater than the power of God's enemies. You just have to use it. You just have to allow it to guide you and to speak to you and you have to listen and apply that power. And the enemies of God know this. That's why they spend so much time trying to disconnect you from the power of God. So much time is spent to interfere with your prayer life, with your word life, to keep you out of community, disconnected from other people so that you're easy pickings. We don't fight this battle by ourselves. We do it with the power of the Holy Spirit within us and we do it in a community of people striving together to see God's purposes accomplished. Now, I think that these examples that we've looked at here with Jesus are a little hard to apply to us. None of us are the Son of God and it's not real tempting to use our power, right, to prove who we are, right? We don't do that, but the principles apply to us. Yes, that's the way Jesus was tempted, but how are we tempted and how can we apply those same principles to our lives? Let's look at some more contemporary examples of the kinds of battles that you and I fight on a daily basis. Let's start with the greatest lie ever told. The greatest lie ever told is this. Good people deserve to go to heaven and bad people deserve to go to hell. It's a powerful lie that has been there from the very beginning. And it's fair to say, I think, that the majority of people in our culture believe that is what the Bible teaches because they've never read the Bible. And they're like, oh, I'm a Christian. I, I go to Sunday school and I, I, I've been in a church my whole life. Good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell. Show me the verse. Show me the passages. It's not there. It's the exact opposite of what God has said is true. And yet this is how most people believe. And what gives it power? Well, how is this a fortress that keeps people from coming to know God? Well, it appeals to our pride. It's got that word, deserve. Oh, we love that word. When I deserve something, that means I earn it and it's mine. And it also feels like justice, right? Good people go to heaven, Bad people go to hell. There's justice in the world. But the problem is, what constitutes a good person? Well, everybody who's worse than me. 
That's what a bad person is, right? I, of course, clear the bar, and I deserve. But what is that? Well, it requires you to be your own God, deciding good and evil for yourself, doesn't it? All the way back to the garden, you can see what an insidious lie this is. Look at how it paints God as arbitrary and unfair. Well, if God doesn't agree with you and what you think you deserve, what about what he thinks and what he says you deserve? Well, that's not fair. We want to look at it and say, well, I'm better than, you know, I'm better than, I'm in the top, I'm in the top 50% in terms of sinners, right? Isn't that where the line should be drawn, 50%? If you're a little bit more good than bad, then you get to go to heaven. And if you're a little bit more bad than good, and God is the arbitrary judge of those things, will look at us and determine these things? That's not the system that God has set up. God has set up a system that says perfection is the standard because all evil must be destroyed. This idea of good people deserve to go to heaven and bad people deserve to go to hell, it directly contradicts the word of God. Romans 3, 23 and 24. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Do you understand what that says? It says there are no good people. There's none because the standard is not 50-50. The standard is are you perfect like God is perfect or not? And if you fall short of the glory of God, then you fail. And that is true of all of us. But yet God is loving and merciful, and as we all fall short and deserve condemnation, we all deserve hell. He offers us heaven as a free gift that we can receive. And we don't get what we deserve. We get something else, something amazing eternal life with him and with each other. Not because we deserve it, but because we give up being our own God. And we choose to come home. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one can boast. This isn't about deserve. This is about faith. Will you receive this gift or will you continue trying to earn your own path? Earning your own path is trying to be your own God. It's right back to Adam and Eve. Knowing good and evil for themselves. But Jesus Christ died and took our punishment upon himself so that we could be saved. But we have to be willing, we have to choose to receive that gift. This idea that good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell is contradicted in almost every book of the New Testament. It's repeated over and over and over and over and over in so many different ways. Yet most people think that's what the Bible is about. Do you see the battle we're in? The war of ideas and the consequences of it? Let's look at another one. This one is popular to, for the enemy to raise against people who follow Jesus. If you sin as a Christian, you are a hypocrite and you might as well quit. 
How can you be a Christian and say you agree with God about what right and wrong are and then do wrong all the time? Lose your temper, be selfish, lust, get into pornography, drink and get drunk. How can you do all of those things and claim to be a child of God and claim that Jesus is your Savior? Well, it's real easy. We become Christians because we are sinners. We don't become Christians as a pledge to never sin again. We become Christians because we realize we can't stop sinning. It's not hypocritical for a Christian to sin. I can say, sin is wrong. Lying is wrong. And then I can lie, and then I have to say, I was wrong when I lied. That's not who I want to be, and I fell, and I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that God will help me to become a better person because I know I will continue to struggle as I go along the way. It would be hypocritical for a Christian to say something is sin, do that thing themselves, and then claim they didn't sin. Right? That would be hypocrisy, and we do that too which is just another sin that Jesus died for and covers. It would be hypocritical for a Christian to know that they are forgiven for all their sins and then refuse to forgive other people who sin against them. That would be hypocrisy. 1 John 1.10, if we say that we have no sin, we make him a liar and the word is not in us. Of course we continue to be sinners. We are human, but you know what? What becoming a Christian means is that we're in the fight. I know that I'm forgiven. And I know that the power of God working in me can help me to change and become a person who sins less and who helps others. But I will continue to demonstrate my need for a Savior until the day that I die because I'm a sinner. Yet that lie, that lie kept me from becoming a Christian for years. I knew all kinds of Christians And I did not think that they were very good people or very nice people. I didn't like them very much. I thought they were hypocrites because they were jerks. I knew I was a jerk, but at least I wasn't a Christian jerk, right? (laughs) And that kept me. I said, you know what? That's exactly why I don't want to become a Christian is I don't want to be one of those hypocrites. And so before I, I ever consider coming to Christ, I know there's all these things that need to change in my life before I could even think of coming to God. And finally, it was explained to me, you can't change those things without God in your life. God doesn't want you to change and then come into a relationship with Him. He wants you to come into a relationship with Him and He will give you the power to change. You're not a hypocrite for throwing up your arms and saying, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? That just means you're knocking at the door of a relationship with God. But you have to open the door and let Him into your life right now. You don't have to change anything to let Him into your life right now. But then He will give you the power and begin to move in your life so that real change can begin to take place if you let Him. How about this one? You're too far gone to walk with God. You're damaged goods, right? 
oh yeah, you know, you're a Christian, or you want to, you're thinking about whether or not to become a Christian, but you've got so much damage in your past, and you have been shaking your fist at God for far too long, your, your story's done. Maybe this could help some people, but not you, not at this point in your life. You're too broken, and you've done too many bad things, and God will refuse you. That's a great lie that Satan tells again and again and again to all of us. Look at Philippians 1.6, for I am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. There is no quit in God. He will, if you begin this process with him, he will see it through. He promises that. Some of us are maybe looking at some of these things and maybe some other things are popping into our minds and we're thinking, you know what, um, I'm not battling with those particular things, Ryan, but I do feel like I'm in a battle and I'm losing the fight. I'm in the middle of a spiritual war that I'm losing right now. What can I do? Don't fight alone. I know that your pride and that your sense of shame doesn't want to bring other people in, doesn't want people to know what's really going on with you, but that is how we win, is we bring the truth into the light as sinners, and we allow other people, we allow God, we allow the Word of God, we allow the Spirit of God, and we allow the people of God to come in and shoulder our burdens together. Satan's strategy is to keep you in the dark and alone. He doesn't want you to share your struggles because that is a great resource for defeating his lies. Look at 1 Peter 5.8. And nine, he says, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That's fascinating to me. They didn't have the nature channel. I mean, yeah, there were deserts, uh, there, were, there were lions in, in that area at that time, but I mean, somebody had studied the way that lions hunt because what do they do? They creep up real close, they work as a pack, and they start roaring. Why? You ever heard a lion roar in person? It will turn you white as a sheet. I was at the zoo one day. I was like a quarter mile from the lion place. And this lion went, and I was just like ready to go home. <laughs> but what happens is, is they do that. And what happens? The herd starts running. Why do they want the herd to start running? Because who's in the back? The babies, the weak, the very old, or the very sick. The easiest ones to take down. And what happens is the pack moves away and the lions move in and they get it, the one, their victim all by themselves. That's just how Satan works. He wants to get you all by yourself with no help, with no friends, living a lie, feeling ashamed and weak and sick and broken and know that you're losing and too prideful, too proud to ask for help from God or anyone else so he can consume you at his leisure. The second half of that verse says, but resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. 
Stand firm and be alert and resist how Satan is trying to quarter you off and get you out there by yourself and know that you are not alone, that everyone is having the same thoughts, the same fears, the same experiences. And the answer is to come together. James 5.16, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish months. How can people pray for you if they don't know what's really going on with you, if they don't really know the battle that's raging in your head? Of course the enemy doesn't want you to tell other people about that. They can bring the power of prayer to bear in that spiritual battle. He can't withstand that. So he's got to cut it off. You cut off the train of supply and the enemy dies. We have to build our truth arsenal. We have to hone our weapons. Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Improve your sword play. Get into the Word of God so that you have weapons of truth, the mind of God, the truth of God, the Word of God, so that you can stand against the incredible barrage of lies that is going to come at you on a daily basis. This is just scratching the surface of how this works, and, and I just hope that you guys are sparked into thinking about what it looks like, the reality of this war. It is real, and you fight it on a daily basis. And so you got to get equipped. That's why we have classes. That's why we have discipleship, mentoring relationships where you can get together with other people and you can help them and you can fight these battles together and you can study the Word of God together. That's why we have biblical counselors who are here to help people bring this stuff into the light and apply biblical truth to their specific situations. That's why we have home church communities that are built together so that we can fight together to bring the love of God and the truth of God and to bring all things into the light. We need each other for that process. And that's why we serve in the community because there we see the power of God in action and we are encouraged to know that we can make a difference in this war. So that's what we've got God, thanks for uh, this time. Thanks for the opportunity to see this battle that you've preserved. You've, uh, you've laid this out there, that spiritual warfare is a war of ideas. And then you've preserved for us in your word some really key examples of how that works that encourages us, God, to think about the battle that we ourselves are in. Give us courage, God. Help us to be united. Help us to be together uh, and to use the great tools that you've given us to fight in this war. In Jesus' name, amen. This study was recorded at Zenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.